I'm Morgan. And I'm Isabel. And this is Womance. A podcast about romance novels. About cockfights. About chimney sweep urchins. About the evil Irish. About bad granddads. About carriages. About being a good nurse. About dirty Italians. About being cut off by your very rich and wealthy family. And about the color yellow. Yellow silk. Yellow shints. About the weird ways in which people become dukes. And about the weirder ways in which people become opera singers. <laughs> but mostly it's about that first thing. Romance novels. And, and ourselves. We always slow down as if the other one needs to catch up. Whatever. I guess it shows empathy. Like, if you yawn, the other person yawns. It's nice to be reassured that you're not a sociopath every once in a while, I find. I'm not going to drown you like a baby possum in a pool when I'm trying to teach lessons. You know what I mean? Like, I'm just not going to do that. That's weirdly the thing. Uh, I I kind of feel bad bringing it up because I didn't realize how traumatic it was going to be for people to hear my like third hand account of a YouTube video interview. It was very traumatic. Yeah, people were really upset. I think it's kind of relatable because we've all seen a small creature in need of help. Yes. And I think possums are also having a social moment on other platforms. You know, there's a series of possum memes. Everyone wants to talk about how they're immune to rabies. And Lyme's disease. Yeah, like it's an invitation to walk up and pet one. It'll probably play dead. When I was a kid, uh, my grandpa asked my brother what he wanted for his birthday. And my brother said a possum, jokingly. And we went to visit my grandparents like the next weekend or something. And Papa had caught a possum. And it was a surprise, like, come outside. And this hissing, fleshy tail coiling out of its enclosure. And my brother was shocked. And Papa was like, what do you want to do with it? And my brother was like, set it free. Set it, get get it away from me. Set it go. That's so funny. That actually feels like a really excellent anecdote for one of the things I want to talk about in the book today, which is somebody calling your bluff. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and like what happens when you get the thing that you said that you wanted. Yeah, yeah. My brother said, set the possum free. He did not say, let's move this possum into my aunt's house. Let's pretty woman this possum until I want to marry the possum. <laughs> let's pretty woman this possum. It's definitely... <laughs> it's definitely an uglier Yorkshire Terrier. All it needs is a glow up. All it needs is a glow up. And <laughs> the possum glow up. I don't care what my teacher says. I'm gonna be, be a, a supermodel. Super and they turn and the possum's in a salon chair with a little towel on its head and little cucumbers over its eyes and someone's painting its little claws. Someone ties a little pink bow at the end of its like worm tail. Gives it a plate of ticks to eat. North America's only marsupial. The only one we needed. But I think we should talk about calling someone on their bluff. First of all, what book are we talking about? What series are we on? And what's this book about? The category is... Decade by Decade Exploration of Category Romances Found in a Soggy Cardboard Box on Facebook Marketplace. In an alley during the pandemic. Today, we'll be diving into 1975 with The Golden Songbird by Sheila Walsh, presented to us by Signet 
Regency Romance. Now, this book was originally published in 1976, but Signet, our edition, was published in... 1991. 1991. Was there any copyright information in the front matter that let us know that it was not altered? Not a single word, not a single letter. Oh, no, but it does have this other very weird thing. Books are available to quantity discounts when used to promote products or services. For information, please write to Premium Marketing Division. So you could buy a bunch of them and be like, get the golden songbird free with your purchase of silverware. Or Tupperware. This would have been perfect for a Tupperware party. Certainly. So, Isabel, who wrote the book? What's it about? Sheila Walsh wrote The Golden Songbird in 1975. And this pretty little 239-page text is about spirited young Lucia Mannering willingly let herself be offered as a prize in a shocking wager between her odious stepfather Jasper Franklin and Hugo, Marquis of Manderslay. For this was her only hope of escape from a household where humiliation was her daily lot and degradation seemed her certain future. It was only when the bet was set and she found herself looking into Hugo's ironic, devilishly handsome face that Lucia fully realized she what she had done. She knew that this nobleman's reputation for cynical wit and scandalous living was the talk of all Regency London, and now she was his to do with as he liked. Lucia's daring gamble had begun. <laughs> reading you're doing I, you like ended as like a newscaster and then you were like i'm gonna triple down all the way through all the way through lucia's daring gamble had begun and she you sound like a swarm of bumblebees <laughs> and she trembled to think how it might end it's also just so you know my nabokov impression a swarm of bumblebees in the back of my throat do it i just did that was it that was your nabokov impression mm-hmm Okay. <laughs> it's perfect. It's Christopher Plummer does Nabokov. Question of the moment. What would Nabokov have thought of the golden so- songbird? There aren't enough butterflies in it or lithe yet womanly children. Mm-hmm. But there is a lot of noblesse noblige, which I think he would have been into as a secret aristo. I'm I'm going to go on the record. I think Nabokov would have been a Woodowis person. I think so too. Absolutely. But this book, it comes out in the era of Woodowis. And it just makes me think of like how the 70s were really... I think the 60s get a lot of credit for being countercultural, but I think that was like a lot of bluster for like the same ideals and different outfits. The 70s seems like a, a f- more transgressive period for me. Is it because of all the yellow prints? Yeah, it is because of all the yellow prints. <laughs> I mean, can you speak more about why you think the 70s are more transgressive? So I looked up the Academy Awards for 1976, and we see The Godfather Part 2 won Best Picture. We also had Chinatown. Francois Truffaut was nominated for Day for Night, which is a really fun movie about making movies. It's not fun. It is fun. 
You'll like it. And then A Woman Under the Influence also came out that year. Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore. I, I think the 70s is is the point at which people started asking questions. Well, I think people were asking questions in the 60s. I think the outcomes of those questions begin to come home to roost in the 70s. And we put a lot of stock on the fact that those questions were being asked in the culture politically in the 60s, but they didn't manifest materially in the cultural artifacts until the 70s. I don't think Woulda Wiss would have been able to write her books in the late 70s without what had happened in the late 1960s. Right. But I I think there's something much more important about the point at which everybody starts getting exposed to these ideas. People start taking home the feminine mystique, right? That happens in the 70s. Or a director like Francois Truffaut making Day for Night gets an Oscar nomination. I love the 70s aesthetic as well. So that that might be influencing why I'm like waving my little 1970s flag. But I was really excited to read our category romance from this period. And especially because you and I think about the flame and the flower. A lot of people think about the flame and the flower as a real pivot point. And while we've read older romances, it's really interesting to read something that was so exciting. Accessible, like something that wasn't a big to-do in romance uh, to kind of get a sense of like what the median temperature was for these books. I love that you've referred to this as a median temperature and that you're talking about audience reach because I think that's actually a really, really good and underutilized point. Like Godfather 2 wins Best Picture. But one of the things that I remember being most shocked by the first time I ever saw that movie was the fact that Diane Keaton openly says that she has an abortion. Yeah, because she, a spite abortion. Right, because she's not going to have a murderer's baby. That that was on screen, and I understood the gravity and the weight, but also could understand that choice, like, at the character's choice. And you're right, like, boy, that, that does seem like an outcome of the question that the women's liberation movement was asking for in 1969, and, like, you know, Godfather comes out part two we're only three years past row at that point and the idea that like this golden songbird definitely has what a wissian yeah undertones and i think you're right to think about it as a median temperature because it doesn't slap the way that Woodowis does. It's not taking those kinds of risks, but I also don't think that a signet Regency romance, I don't think Sheila Walsh writing for this line would have been allowed to take those risks. I don't think that this book would have been published like that. Yeah, and also like Flame in the Flower, what we know about how it was written and how it was published, right? It's almost like a vanity project. We always think about Flame in the Flower as this gateway towards sex on the page, right? But I think what it also is is a gateway towards true id appearing on the page. Whereas I do feel like there's some interesting stuff happening in The Golden Songbird, but it doesn't have a project of self-interest, right? It's not like telling my story. It's not what I want to read. Yeah, absolutely. And the formula that this book in particular is following is Georgiette Heyer's Regency formula. Can you tell us what that formula is? For anybody who loves Jane Austen adaptations, specifically what I would call the Matthew McFadden, Kieran Knightley adaptation, Georgiette Heyer is like that without the hand clenching and the beautiful soundtrack. You know, it follows essentially uh, an Elizabeth 
Anna Darcy. They have some sort of misunderstanding in a series of parlors and dances, and they come together very denuded of sex at the very end, which always ends in a marriage. Things to know about Georgie at Hire, she was hugely prolific, and many people in the romance community cut their teeth on her because she was considered the grand dame of Regency. Also, you can point a direct line between Georgiette Hire and the continued popularity of Regency. But she was a white supremacist and not a nice person. Those things also infest these parlors and dance halls in these books. That's what I have to say about Georgiette Hire. I've never read a Georgiette Hire, but I've heard of her. <laughs> I think I recall, and I want to confirm it real quick. Stephen Fry is a Georgiette Hire fan. He spoke at the commemoration. Yeah, I think Britain put a plaque on her house. You can find this video on YouTube of him doing the talk. And he talks about people stealing Georgiette Hire's research and passing off her work as their own. And the example he uses is Georgette found another romance novel that used a term, I want to say like cake, to describe how a dandy was dressed. Called him a cake or something like that. Georgette Heyer confronted this other writer and was like, how did you know about the term cake? Mm -hmm. And the other writer was like, well, it's like a term to describe dandies. And Georgette Heyer was, no, it wasn't. I found it in one letter that existed and it doesn't exist anywhere else as a term. I, Georgette Heyer. It's weird to me that Stephen Fry just kind of buys this story and he's like, how great is Georgette Heyer? Uh, okay. She didn't come up with, she couldn't just like have a character have an idiosyncratic thought. It all had to be like grounded in some kind of like historical truth. Cool. So she's like, she's a research rabbit hole. Also feels very much like Johanna Lindsay or Kathleen Woodowis. Like, I don't begrudge her that part. I begrudge her like going up to somebody else and being like, you didn't do the research I did. I also like begrudge her the specificity. I'm like, have a little imagination here. Sure. There's a term that's underlined in this book called I'm no milk and water miss. It was underlined and this copy has a very loud reader who read this previously and did a lot of underlines and said that it was plagiarism from Georgette Heyer. But that very line that milk and water miss is in the 1980s book that we read. And I know that this is a thing that people say both in Regency but like I don't think Georgette Heyer invented that. Well remember Remember when everyone got up in arms because Paris Hilton tried to trademark That's Hot? And I would say Paris Hilton actually has a... Well, you could argue that Paris Hilton, as we know her, is a character created by Paris Hilton. That makes more sense to me than someone being like, this term that was in a letter written hundreds of years before I ever existed is mine to use because I found the letter. Yeah, this story doesn't make me like... Stephen Fry or Georgette Heyer more. But I think Stephen Fry might have been the original owner of the copy of the Golden Songbird that we owned because this person wrote plagiarism in so many of the margins. I mean, they were a real other character joining us on this read-along. They were. And I kind of wish that they had had a podcast. I do too, although I felt like I was reading their podcast. And it's really <laughs> funny because they bring it up as Georgette Heyer. And dear listeners, we understand that the romance community churns out a lot of books and that there have been some very high-profile plagiarism problems in the industry. Yeah. 
So because I was concerned that this might be a thing and that Sheila Walsh might be a dubious character, I went ahead and tried to verify the claims of our third silent member of the team today. Nothing that I could find immediately that pulled George at higher. And since they didn't say what book it was, it was even harder to decide. But also the things that are underlined. Let me just give you a taste of what this person is saying. Stephen Fry. Please refer to them as Stephen Fry. Special guest Stephen Fry. What Stephen Fry calls plagiarism in all caps, underlined, and multiple exclamation points. But it's not easy to read the handwriting, even though they write in all caps. No, it's not. I can't wait to talk about some of the side characters that they hate. Okay, so here, here's one. Individuality is the thing, Miss Mannering, said Mr. Brummel in his droll way. One should strive always to be out of the common. You have an unusually lovely voice. Use it with discrimination and it will open all of the doors for you. Lucia soon became quite accustomed to performing in public and as her confidence grew, so her voice gained new depths of maturity, Plagiarism, plagiarism, plagiarism. Even if you could find this, and I'm sure you can find a singer in a Georgette Heyer book. She's written so many books. Who gets better as she gains confidence. That's not plagiarism. That's just two people having the same character arc. (laughs) It's not like there are that many character arcs available to us as human beings. Right! Also, Georgiette Heyer stole this idea from Flippin' Emma when, like, the weird dittering aunt who has the niece that she's so proud of, Jane Mason or whatever. Or, like, from someone's, like, personal missives that she dug out of a trunk in one of the, like, fancy houses she owned. Yeah, it's like, this isn't plagiarism. These things are very similar, but that happens a lot in romance. I, I too, was like, are we talking about the concept or is it, like, a word-for-word plagiarism? It seems like our special guest today, Stephen Fry, really likes Georgette Heyer. It seems like you would have sought out a romance novel that was akin to Georgette Heyer. It feels like choosing a signet regency line makes a lot of sense. And then you're mad at it when it is like Georgette Heyer. Yeah, it's like you're mad that you got the knockoff. And I'm like, you got the knockoff. Like you knew what you were getting. Like it's a regency that isn't written by Georgette Heyer. It's it's a cat. It's a pre woody historical romance in a category line. What did you think this was going to be, Stephen Fry? Stephen Fry, it's like Rihanna told us. Bay Bay, this is what you came for. Exactly. That's what I wanted to say to that reader. Okay, so now that we've got, like, because we're going to keep talking about that, but I want to jump to the very beginning because one of the things that gripped me immediately about this story is how we open. Yes! Yes. So, we open... Not in a gambling hell, as we predicted in our preview episode, but in the private home of a guy, a gentry, like semi-gentry, whose wife has recently passed, got a bit of a gambling problem. He gets in over his head. He just plays cards with fellow gentry, but some of them are a lot better than him. And a lot richer as well. A lot farther to go. But he's chasing that dragon. He's got a gambling addiction. And so Hugo, who is our hero, and also probably has a gambling addiction, but like we said earlier, more money, so it's less of an issue. Hugo is like all in, 
cleaning the tables. And he's like done now. He doesn't want to hang out with this guy who's like been drinking too much and is becoming uncouth. He's a gentleman gambler because he's got nothing but time and is going to inherit a dukedom. And this money grubbing merchant who has become rich, like wasn't born into it, is now annoying him. And he's like wants to walk away from the table. And then the guy says, double or nothing. Yeah. You've got nothing. And he's like, what do you have to offer me? And the guy's like, my stepdaughter. My recently orphaned stepdaughter. Why don't we bring her in here? You remember her from earlier. And as we know from Hugo's perspective, she was like nice enough looking. And so she gets trotted into the room and Hugo's like, okay. Like he's going to call this guy's bluff. He loses his hand, therefore his stepdaughter. And Hugo's like, we're just going to act like this never happened because it's really fucking embarrassing for both of us that I would accept that bet and that you would offer that bet. But I was calling your bluff. To make a point, I'm not going to take this girl home, so. And now, beep, beep, I'm Audi 5000. But, lo and behold. Gets to the foyer. Lucia's got her suitcases and her cloak, and she's like, all right, buddy. We're going. Time to pay the fucking piper. (laughs) And then he has his bluff called immediately, and he's like, all right, you've done it. You've embarrassed me. Fuck you. Go the back up fucking stairs. I was never going to take you. He's like, oh, no, don't worry. Don't worry. I know this is so embarrassing for all of us. You've made your point. I'm now flustered and embarrassed. Please go upstairs. We get Lucia's perspective. She's got two things on her mind. First of all, she's weighing the worst thing that could happen if this pre-Duke. I've only been doing this podcast for three years. I still don't know the (laughs) word for. He's a ducal heir. He's the Marquis. The Marquis. Whatever this Marquis will do to me is probably at least more interesting than what's happening to me here. And she knows that her stepfather has been trying to marry her off. And she's got this thing in the back of her head, a big lipped Irish Johnny come lately. And she's like, I got to get out of here before that happens. So this guy, the devil I don't know, is better than the devil I know. Second thing she's thinking is, fuck this guy if he doesn't have the balls to follow through on this bet. Sounds like he needs to be taught a lesson. Then he thinks she needs to be taught a lesson. Mm -hmm. So I am going to take her. So he takes her to his aunt's home. He has an elderly doting aunt, which seems to be all the rage in historical Regency categories. Uh, who's going to, you know, take care of her. And thus begins our Pygmalion. And also our love story between the wonderfully named characters of Hugo and Lucia. Now, this is what I mean about the 70s. There is no sex on the page in this book, but there's a lot of implied ravishment. The fact that he would put up his daughter as... Collateral in a bet. Yeah, as stakes, right? That implies ravishment. Later on in the book, we get a lot more of that razor's edge. She even gets taken to a house of ill repute. But even before, in the scene that we're talking about with Hugo and Lucia meeting, when he, I'm going to take you, they're calling each other out, and she's like, okay. And then they pull up to a house, and she assumes that it's his, and he brings her all the way inside, and then it's my aunt's house. And she's like, oh my god, thank god, which is an implied ravishment. It never happens in the book. Rape never happens. Various kinds of physical assault do. But rape never happens. But it's constantly like, you know when someone pretends like they're going to hit you and then they stop at the last minute? And it's like, well, 
is this that different from you actually hitting me? This just feels like I was emotionally hit. Very much using like the cachet and the power of sexual violence in order to titillate the reader. Pretty much the same thing as using sex to titillate the reader, right? Having something like taboo and uh, sensorial and... uh, It's using the fear part of pleasure rather than the pleasure, pleasure part of pleasure. But it's still towards the same ends. Yeah, absolutely. And one of the things that's weird about it is that in a Woody Wiss, you get both. You get the sometimes actual ravishment and sexual violence, but mostly just the threat. And then you also... The tension. And then you also get like actual sex, like a holocaust of emotions. Oh, bless her heart. (laughs) You only ever get the threat. It was weird to read because I think I, because I understood the razor's edge of that. and And I thought that I'd get the other side and then never did and was disappointed. Yeah, it always felt like if you're doing this much with sexual violence, I was reading it and I was like, are we, is there gonna be a sex scene in this book? Yeah, that is also my thought. And there wasn't. But it is not totally denuded of sex. No. And I think like that's a really important point because in our 70s book is very different than our 80s book. Yeah. And our 90s book is very different from all of them. And our 60s book actually was pretty titillating, but not in like... Anyways, um, that'll be our retrospective. I know. We'll talk about the progress of how horny we were over the course of... (laughs) (laughs) Everybody's calling each other's bets. Hugo... Turns out is a good gentleman. Takes Lucia to his aunt's house, who, again, just like chilling in her rich widowhood. And we find out that her last name, Mannerling, is a famous one and that the maiden aunt, or not maiden aunt, the widowed aunt knows the good old colonel who turns out to be Lucia's grandfather, who cut off his young son and Italian wife when he married um, against the family wishes. And that's why Lucia grew up in virtual poverty. But with two... Virtual poverty is important. But with two parents who very much loved each other and traveled a lot. So Lucia speaks several languages. She's a very good singer. She's not without charms and cachet of her own, but she doesn't have family backing. But she is indeed a blue blood by birth. Yes, class. We all knew that class was going to come shuffling in on tiny, well-bred feet uh, when we started reading. But this book is doing the most, and it's like, for what reason? So I'm referring to the fact that our heroine, Lucia, she's having a conversation with Hugo, explaining why she doesn't want to meet her grandfather. You know, he cut off my dad because my dad married an opera singer but did you know, my mom's not really an opera singer. She was actually from a really well-to-do family, but her whole family was murdered in a massacre, and she escaped and had to make her own way in the world as an opera singer. What was a girl to do? Why bother with this? Like, like I know that it's like this tortured love story. Why was it important to you to establish that her mother was, in fact, didn't just have a tragic backstory, but was you know, titled. Right. And this becomes even more important in the text because Hugo is good guy because he's tall 
and has nice hair. But he is good guy also because he's going to inherit and he's responsible for what he's going to inherit. Like his dad gambled away a lot of the stuff that wasn't entailed. And so now he has all this responsibility. He's the oldest brother. He's like in charge of getting his younger sister to her debut and all this other stuff. We read him as good guy, but part of how we read him as good guy is that he is responsible and answers to his class calling, quote unquote. We understand our heroine as good person because of her blue blood a little bit. And then when we meet her blue-blooded family, we understand more and more about that. But it's really only in the contrast to the people who are not blue bloods, Mm -hmm. i.e. our villains. We've got our mercantile guy, her stepfather, who wanted to rise in the ranks so badly that he staked his stepdaughter. So we know he's a bad guy. And then we have our Irish villain, entrepreneur himself, which is another version of not being of the class. And so the way in which class is used in this text to signal virtue felt so old and so gross and so British. I was just like, so British. Because Gideon, the villain we're talking about, he does have like land. He has title. He goes to all the same balls and he's known as quite the rake and quite the charmer. So in order for us to understand fully that he's a bad person, because the book describes him as tall, hot, luscious lips, very charming. Everybody wants to do him. And the book, instead of relying on the fact that it turns out he's a sexual predator they're like so he's irish though (laughs) and he's running his own businesses like ew one of which is cockfighting Ugh, i know i really hated that genuinely hated that (laughs) where boys can be boys at the cockfighting ring i will like i'm glad that you brought up the cockfighting ring because i feel like Dogfights and cockfights are actually talked about a lot in Regency romances, but our heroes don't go to those things. They know that they exist. But this book spent the time to describe not only the people at the cockfight, but the two cocks fighting. And one of them has two ribs that punctured its little lung and it's like dying its last gasping breath and it still goes after the other cock. Yeah. And then yeah. they both is like... The mute, so it's a mute, it's a story of mutually assured destruction that takes place over three paragraphs. <laughs> I read every single word. <laughs> I did too. I couldn't look away. And I was so shocked and I felt so bad for the little cock. And then he like you thought the cock with the punctured lug is gonna is a goner, and you're like, oh no, that that cock lost. But then it turns out, no. It's the little cock that could. And that little cock rises and fights. In a death throw and kills the other one in this, you say, as mutual assured destruction. And part of me, like, I will say, like, I was really grossed out by that. I was not expecting that kind of violence against animals. I didn't like reading it. I have never picked up a romance novel and thought, hope there's a cockfighting scene. Or like, that that would even be a possibility. Sword fighting, okay. A duel, a, a naked mole rat creature that turns into a waterbed. I've read that in a romance novel and I still arrived at the cockfight and was like, what am I doing here? What is happening? When did this train get off the tracks? And become just like a long bus. I don't know where it's going. <laughs> I don't know where it's going. So I hated it. But then I like got done reading it. And I like set the book down and I was like, 
after all of my many years of reading romance, historicals in particular, because that's my particular tipple, I was like, I've never read this violence. I've read a lot about the edges of it, but reading it made it all the more real, all the more violent, and all the more terrible. This was a choice about how awful cockfighting is. And also further describes the villainy of our big-lipped Irish asshole. Did a thing where our hero got to be disgusted and also deeply characterized the cocks. I was on the edge of my seat. So so for our listeners, here's how we arrive at the cock fight. Our heroine uh, is... At long last, invited to go and meet her grandfather who lives in the country. So our hero, at his aunt's request, accompanies her to her grandfather's house. Yeah. They pass by an inn. They find out that there's going to be a cockfight there. And they're like, okay, moving right along. Doesn't really concern us. Then when Hugo is on his way back, he's approached by highwaymen who attack him. And then this other country gentleman comes up and helps him fend off his uh, assailants do they murder one of them they beat one of them almost to death and there's like this very scary scene i'm glad that you brought this up morgan because i think this like illustrates the point really beautifully because we have our hero who's in a rainstorm beset upon by three highwaymen one of whom has a gun pointed directly at his chest he takes the gun between his fingers and pushes it up just enough so that the bullet whizzes past him. Then Country Conrad, who works for the home office, he's very up and coming, comes to his rescue. And then they like beat the highwaymen and then the highwaymen leave. And then they're like, let's go to the inn and get a pint. He's like, oh shit, I remember there's this cockfight that's happening there. It's because Hugo is a bit of a a celebrity. He's well known for his attire, for his way of dressing. And Conrad's younger brother, who has a cock in the cockfight, so he is at the cockfight. So Conrad's like, I have to introduce you to my little brother. He's going to freak out. You're like his biggest hero. Hugo is like, you know what? I will go because Gideon, our Irish villain, I know that he likes cockfights. I bet he sent these highwaymen to kill me because he sees me as a romantic threat when it comes to Lucia. So that's how we end up at the cockfight. And the cockfight was more violent and more terrifying and more edge of your seat than the weird highwaymen who held Hugo up. Yes. I would also say it's more stressful than the kidnapping the pre-kidnapping when our heroine shoots the big sexy Irish villain I would say it's the most intense shot by shot writing of violence that I think I've ever read and I would also say I was a bit more captivated by each of those cocks than I was by Hugo I was really rooting for those little guys and I thought what if they teamed up just like Hugo and Conrad did and took on everyone who had brought them to the cockfight and use their little, yeah, use their little knife spurs uh, to murder all of the humans in the room. I too had that fanfic headcanon where they're like going <laughs> to look at each other and be like, I don't hate you. You and I are the same. I'm yeah. actually in love with you. Let's fuck all these guys and get out of here and ride off into the sunset. And the fact that this book could make me care in three paragraphs about two cocks this way that we're not penises amazing chills that's the thing it's like sheila walsh clearly demonstrates she is a really good writer excellent writer i don't think she was 
too invested in Hugo as a human being. I don't know anything about Hugo other than like, quote unquote, good man. Yeah, exactly. I think he's like, uh, well dressed, but we don't even like get his like perspective on like how he developed his sense of style, which is interesting to have it be like a character trait. We do know that like Hugo likes dating older women, but it's in that like kind of pat way of like, because they fucks better, have fewer like scruples, wealthy older widows. But I think it's interesting. The other thing about the cockfight is, first of all, that it's taken up so much space in our imagination regarding the golden song, Bird. Uh, But also, it's like completely without allegory. It's three paragraphs that does not, like, both our good guy's cock and our bad guy's cock die. The end. That particular chicken doesn't come home to roost. In the hands of other authors, I think you're right. It would have been an allegory. But I think, like, the suddenness of the violence and the horrificness of it really serves to create sort of like a tent post in the villainy of Gideon Bennett, Mm. who organized the fight. Because he isn't really that villainous. Like the way that he, he's like a stalker. Like, you know, he's bad. He has a real sense of entitlement to space, time. He's one of those guys who's like, smile, baby. (laughs) Yeah, that is scary. But it isn't guy who would create a fight where two living creatures are forced to kill each other for laughs and for fun. Is a shorthand for Gideon's villainy and I think that's why we spend so much time with it because we don't really get Gideon's violence in the same way until the very end and only then through the perspective of the madam in the house of ill repute you know I think that's true I think you're right I think it's a way of controlling the stakes and the reading experience because if you didn't have that cockfight that kidnapping at the end would come across as like and all of the information that we get from the madam about Gideon would be like what I just thought he liked assignations. Right. He's the kind of villain I see all the time, which is to say his villainy is prosaic. And, and I hate to say it, like, status quo. It's not threatening in the way that, like, the villain of this story needs to be set up as. Right. Because his entitlement to her time and her body and that sort of, like, you're prettier when you smile, so you should smile. It's so quotidian. It's like people say that to you on the bus. And so it doesn't register at the same kind of villainy level that I think the cockfight forces me to understand him as, as a creature of violence. Gideon is really interesting as a character in a book from 1976 because we see all of the superficial quotidian evil of him, which is like, let me carry your boxes. I don't want you to carry my boxes. I'm already carrying your boxes. Our heroine says, like, I can't put my finger on it, but he makes me feel nauseous. Exactly. And then the book is like, yes, all of these bad feelings are justified because he is a sexual sadist. It doesn't, you know, wink towards the idea that he's a sexual sadist, like, and that's what he's been seeking this whole time. And then it, like, totally justifies everything. You know, I think back on reading our book from the 60s, and just to talk about how far we've come, like, that's a 
piece of popular culture as much as this is a piece of popular culture, median temperature as much as this is. And in that book, we see our heroine get fired because our hero suddenly feels weird about her being working in a bank, even though he has no ownership over her finances or future. They're not entwined in that way, but he still gets to like determine that she's fired. The CIA agent breaking through the glass door in her house and entering her home, and then her being like, oh, I'm going to protect you. And those things are presented as like charming. <laughs> Oh, isn't life funny how it works out? And this book does not do that. It's like, yes, he is carrying her boxes because he's a fucked up person. That is a fucked up person thing to do and this fucked up person is doing it. God, Morgan, you're so right. There's this other part where Hugo is mad that he saw her talking to Gideon at the ball. But of course, that's how Hugo sees it. And we, the reader, know, because we've been in Lucia's perspective, that Gideon has cornered her and is blackmailing her to spend time with him because he's like, if you don't pay attention to me, I'm going to start talking to Hetty, who is the 18-year-old debutante, Hugo's younger sister, who's having her first season. And he's like, she's naive and innocent and stupid. And I bet I can snap that up. You make it worth my while and I'll leave her alone. Hugo witnesses this interaction and that they're standing too close when really it's Gideon towering over her and then he comes over and is jealous and possessive and you should know better he's not a good person and there's this moment where it's like I obviously know that but like how can you not know me that you wouldn't know that I would know that there's like this real weird miscommunication but also the fact that like Hugo's not an ally in that moment. He doesn't come in to rescue her. He doesn't come in to be like, hey, get near, like standing real close. In fact, very few people, only Toby ever does that. There are no good male allies in this story, except for Toby. Which I want to talk about Toby. I love Toby. I'm glad we're going to talk about Toby. Because I do feel like there are some winking, shrugging suggestions about Toby in this book. Our hero isn't a good ally because he's just there to be like, hey, just so you know, that dude's a bad person and kind of sucks that you were talking to him. And it's like, don't you think I know that? (laughs) I don't need a lecture on this guy being a bad person. Like, I need help. Right, and that Hugo could miss that and all the other men can also miss that and like then put it on the woman where it's like, you're inviting that, stop it. And she's like, I'm not inviting it. I need you to run some fucking interference here. And the only person who does that is Toby because in the package situation that you keep beautifully referring to on the street where she's like getting her glow up and like the widow aunt has given her all this money to get new dresses and stuff. Toby sees them on the street and he goes, Gideon, she doesn't want you to carry her package packages don't carry her packages I'm taking her home I'll get them brah you can scurry away yeah and then he also leverages Hugo's influence to get Gideon out of there he's like I don't think my cousin Hugo the Marquess the soon-to-be Duke would be too pleased to know that you're hassling his aunt's ward yeah so Toby is in the book from the beginning he is at the game he has busted so he's just Toby is always described as kind of like sitting in a chair sprawled out yes Toby is a captain in 
in Sir Wellington's army. He's like waiting to be called up to fight Napoleon. So he's like always in his like doodads and like his epaulets. And he is, he's like a sprawling creature. He feels like a really big like bull mastiff energy, very loyal and like a little bit doesn't know what to do with his paws, but not in a bad way. Like loves going to war. Loves going to war. Loves being around the boys. Gets really messed up when his best friend dies. All of them and their fancy matching outfits. And he's also like the only person with a penis who isn't interested in Lucia. And they have this like specific conversation where she's like, not us, right, guy? And he's like, yeah, no, not us. And she's like, you ever? And he's like, probably not ever for me with any woman ever. And she's like, okay. He's like, I'm so excited to travel with 1,800 men (laughs) to a faraway place where it's just us camping together. Yeah, that sounds like a lot of fun for you, Toby. Uh, so Toby is gay, I think. Yeah, he's definitely queer quoted, yeah. Reading a characterization like that in something like a category romance is a really clear way, like a really clear example of what queer coding means. Because they never say anything explicit about his sexuality, period. But they spend a lot of time talking about his hobbies and interests and how his relationship with Lucia feels to Lucia. Which is safe and brotherly and attentive, but never sexual. Never sexual. And it's so rare to have a male character who doesn't have even like a passing glance towards the heroine in a romance novel. Most male characters kind of exist to support the idea that our female character is desirable and beautiful and and worthy of love and attention and to be a marchioness. Absolutely. I think the queer coding of Toby in that way, also because like we've, we've read enough romances that are homophobic so to have this queer coding be so positive for 1976 also feels really good toby's masculinity is never called into question and in fact we have a moment where toby gets really sick there's an outbreak of disease and hugo and lucia go up to fetch him bring him home and lucia nurses him back to health and says like no one else will care for him he needs me right now And while that never feels romantic from Lucia's perspective, Hugo does have like a moment of like, oh no, what does this mean? She's in love with Toby, but it's, that's never seen as ridiculous, right? Like there's nothing ridiculous about Toby. He's by far one of the most like competent, understanding and articulate characters. Feels very much almost like an audience cipher for whenever you need to like just be watching the couple, right? Then we enter Toby's perspective to get like a clear-eyed view of what's happening between the hero and heroine. And it's funny too because Toby also serves as one of the only characters, oh like not one of the only characters, but he serves as such a strong character to humanize Hugo because as we said, we don't spend a ton of time in Hugo's perspective. We don't know much about him except from what other people say. What other people say about him is that he is ironic he makes really good sartorial choices with his clothes and he's like a very competent land manager those aren't like necessarily good things in a hero for like you know a romantic uh connection but it's toby who explains that his father gambled all of this money away and that when hugo was only 21 he didn't even get to be a young man because he immediately had to take ownership of the house he really helped toby he bought toby's captaincy so toby wouldn't starve because toby wasn't trained to have a job because he was a firstborn son who was going to inherit nothing now 
now. And that because of that, Toby's like, I, I'm very loyal and I, I love him very much and you'll never find a better guy. Of course, he never makes me feel bad about it either. Like that's one of the nice things about Hugo is he just did it and doesn't make me feel anything about it. Without Toby's perspective, I feel like Hugo would be even flatter than he already is. Yeah, I think that's so true. And your kind of explanation of Hugo via Toby makes me realize or brings to mind is this idea of masculine affection isn't expressed verbally really it's like shown through action or like an acceptable way for men to express themselves without toby we wouldn't have opportunity for hugo to express his affection like that he's capable of of tender feeling i think about that a lot especially in older romances and like my own disinterest in reading books where there's like lots of monologues about feeling right like I know you love them and I feel like bored by them but I think that might be my like one of my hang-ups where I'm like I think there's something in my head even though I'm, I try to be conscientious I'm like well I prefer it if my masculine hero showed not tell <laughs> and I think I think you're right and so watching authors try to pick the lock of this prison is always really interesting and I think that's why Toby not only gives us a window to see Hugo affection in action, but the fact that Toby freely expresses his affection for Hugo, I think is also one of the ways in which we understand him as like not a romantic lead. Yeah, different from the other boys. But the way those are characterized, and this is a pattern that's really clear to me as we're reading category romances, or maybe I just needed to read these many, is that like every time a hero expresses something like that, it has to be some sort of assignation almost. That like form of like verbose self-expression, assigning signs to feeling as opposed to like action. I need you to understand, so I have to come to you at your level, woman, and use my words. Because if I just throw you up against this wall and kiss you silly, like, maybe that's not the move. Maybe it is. Maybe me, like, escorting you to your grandpa's house isn't, like, a clear enough communique of my affection. And I love you so much that I'm going to lower myself. That's what I mean by, like, the assignation. Like, they're always, like, embarrassed and, like, overwhelmed in the moment of doing it, right? Like, they're never, like... And then with great dignity and nonchalance, he professed his love. It's always, like, he was sweaty and trembling. (laughs) (laughs) He threw up a little bit on his shirt. (laughs) That's Darcy's first proposal, right? Where it's like, you must allow me to confess how ardently I love and admire you. And he is literally vomiting in his mouth as he's saying. (laughs) Here we are in our our category regencies, right? Which nowhere is the perfume of Austin thicker, I think, in romance writing than perhaps here in this pre-Woodowis moment, no less. PW, if you will. I think Hugo is maybe like a Darcy in the fact that, you know, he like is B-Rabbit before a rap battle when he goes on to like tell her how he feels, right? But I think he's also a Darcy in the fact that he's a bit of a projector screen. We know he wears cool clothes, whatever that means to you. It's like that idea of like, uh, which I, I love finding out the fact that the director of the 2005 Pride and Prejudice, 2011, 
2011 Pride and Prejudice? 2003? Oh my gosh. The 2003 Pride and Prejudice was like, Regency clothes are ugly. Do not put them in my movie. And like this novel has like just enough description that like everyone might as well be wearing bell bottoms and polyester. Because there's also this obsession with the color yellow on our heroine, which I always think is a super 70s thing. Totally. There's also a lot of mulberry velvet. Yes, yes. Which, like, the combination of yellow and mulberry feels, like, very mid-70s to me. I think you're exactly right. Like, if she could have written them in bell bottoms and peasant tops, she would have. Yeah, yeah. It's incredible that an avocado green didn't make its way in. There's definitely a burnt sienna moment. It's so, it is so 70s. And I think that's why it was so easy for Radway to come to the conclusion and reading the romance that historicals are actually like an easier safer way to talk about our current moment but like he's a projector screen you can imagine whatever like is the sexiest oldie clothing for men on him they talk about like a cravat whatever that means a jacket whatever that means pants whatever those are (laughs) the knots in his cravat are the fanciest but like without talking about what kind of knots they are people imitate yeah what makes it fancy what we don't know because they aren't the details but people imitate hugo's cravats yeah yeah i love learning about the historical context of what's called the great male renunciation which is when the brits were like God, these Americans over here in this war, these farm boys, they look way better than us. They look so hot. Their pants don't even fit them. You can see how, like, muscular they are. So then all the lords started, like, getting these really heavy materials tailored really tight so that they worked almost like corsets if they weren't wearing actual corsets in order to look more like American farmers. (laughs) When all of the American farm boys fighting in the revolution were that fit because they did eight hours of hard labor every day. Yeah, and their parents couldn't afford to buy them newer, looser pants. So they just had their hogs out to trot on the battlefield. Totally. They weren't even their pants. They were their brother's pants who died of like failed appendectomy. By failed appendectomy, they mean the doctor just kind of cut him open and shook him over the ground to see if anything bad fell out. I guess it was witches. Yeah. Oh, no, it's witches again. But who's the witch? I don't know. Who sucks the most at church? (laughs) Who's alone and, like, doing it okay? Let's definitely kill her. Yeah, so I think she, like, made you sick. Um, Here are your brother's (laughs) pants, I guess. Uh, And the Brits were like, that's a good look. (laughs) I would like that look. And thus begins the great male fashion renunciation. And to this very day, straight men are trying to look like they're just wearing their brother who was killed by a witch's pants and that they didn't put any thought at all into what they're wearing. It's just whatever their witch-murdered brother passed on to them. (laughs) Just how we know that they care. They're good people. Yeah. I've got bigger things on my plate. Money, money, money. (laughs) Witches, witches, witches. Witch murder, witch murder, witch murder. I've got bigger things to worry about than my donk in these calfskin trousers. It just happens to look like that. I can't help it. Hashtag woke up like this in my witch murdered brother's clothes. So good. All right. Sexiest part? Um. Oh, wow. 
I mean, obviously, it's the clothes. Like, we've, we've already just covered that. Yeah, it, it is the clothes. Yeah, I don't know. It's not, like... It's not a sexy book. Like, everything that is kind of sexual about it is very close to sexual assault. Like, it's just titillating. Like, those are the moments when you feel... Like, there are, uh, there are real moments of titillation in the fact that, like, you feel the hairs on the back of your neck stand up, right? You have this heightened awareness. If it wasn't in the context of a kidnapping or a cockfight would be pleasant but it's overall not so nice but this is what you can expect from this book is they go to hugo's estate which is of course very nice whatever that means to you they're opening up the house and a chimney sweep comes to clean out the chimney and then he has this little urchin with him who passes out and our heroine is like what do you mean you bought this child first of all we talk about child trafficking right he's like oh i bought this boy from his parents who were starving so i have a right to use him at will and i'm using him to climb up chimneys i did my historical research moment of the heroine being like we all know this is illegal and this is the proper way of seeking out legal redress in this situation and then our hero gets to flex and be like i'm above normal legal redress and I am just going to take on this child and nurse him back to help with your assistance because you have inspired me with your goodliness, Lucia, who is now called Lucy because she had to be anglophiled. (laughs) He's like, you've inspired me. And they have this moment where they've like bathed this five-year-old and put him in fancy clothes in a big bed, hot water bottle of some sort. I think it was like a tin of coals. She's sitting there and Hugo puts his like hand on her shoulder and then his other hand on her hand as they're attending to the child. And um, yeah, that was a nice moment. And there was another one in there too. Oh, oh, I thought of another one. You go ahead. Uh, This isn't my sexiest moment, but I'm glad that you brought that scene up because this child passes out. They have the whole thing. And he's like, don't cast me in the reformer's role because he is a lord. He sits in the House of Lords. He could indeed help pass more laws protecting children. And he like basically fucking says he's not going to do that, which gross. But then, you know, he's like, well, where are we going to put him after we bathe this child? The butler suggests like, you know, unused servant's bedroom. And she's like, well, if he wakes up there, he won't know where he is. And then he's like, well, we can't put him in a nice guest room because that'll be even more disorienting for the street urchin. And then he says, well, I guess we can put him in the bed that my valet usually sleeps in right off my door. And then she's like, oh, Hugo, would you? And then his sister, who like perfect sister move, by the way, is like, Lucy, he's joking with you. And then she turns to him and she, oh, you weren't in earnest. And then he's like, all right. And then he puts the kid in the valet's bed right off off his bedroom and I was like <laughs> no one knows where the valet slept that night <laughs> least of all the valet yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> classic romance novel trying to be like we're helping the poor and it's like where the fuck is the valet gonna sleep now because you know they're not putting him in one of the nice rooms oh no classic romance the very tippy top of the class structure and the very bottom but like working class folks get out of here well 
Now the two of us are starting to see eye to eye with third co-host Stephen Fry in the margins of this book. So one of the subplots, sorry to, I just like. No, it's good. We bring it all back. Bring it all back. One of the subplots with Stephen Fry. Yeah. Co- Country Conrad, who becomes like best friends for life with Hugo after their experience of beating two men almost to death and then attending a cockfight together. Blood brothers, if you will. Yeah. Uh, Conrad starts to fall in love with Hugo's sister. Hetty. Co-host Stephen Fry writes relentlessly in the margins every time there's a fleeting glance, every time Hugo reassures Conrad that Hetty likes him. It's like, oh really? A country lord is gonna get married off to a marchioness? I don't fucking think so. Here, here. I didn't realize Marquesses were ready to abandon their sisters, no, to throw their sisters away to the first Penniless, titleless, nay, Bob, a duke's daughter. How could he? I'm like, how could he? I'm like, first of all, country Conrad is pretty great. He works for the home office. He's trying to better himself in every way. That's just one of the comments. I can find another one. Team country Conrad, okay? It's not like his family's not doing well. He's got a younger brother who's a fashion plate. Exactly. And here's this other part where like Conrad is offering to help in the situation with Gideon. And then he's, and then the comment says, did they cut off the part where Conrad moved in? into the house and I'm like he has his own house he's just there right now like he's uh, he's also in London why are you being such a dick about Conrad yeah Conrad's great this book published in 1976 like it's not like these pen marks are faded and maybe this book hasn't been opened since it was wait no this version was printed in 96 right 91 91 so like that's the earliest someone could have written those notes in the margin how can we think as a society we will progress when there's still someone Stephen Fry just kidding not actual Stephen Fry but there's still someone writing shit like that in the margins of historical categories being like how could the duke marry off his sister to a well-to-do country person right Hetty has is only 18 but like country conrad's 28 so like so here's this other comment where because Hetty's leading conrad on like knows that he loves her and is making him jealous on purpose at all of these like season balls and stuff and so he's like getting really mad about it rightfully so as far as i think she knows that what she's doing and it's not nice and she's been warned by our heroine to stop it because conrad's a nice person and then in the book it says Hetty thoroughly frightened burst into fresh floods of tears but conrad looked at her with with cold anger and in the margins it says his long and adored love huh he has every right to be mad at Hetty right now why do you hate Conrad honestly so weird such a weird thing not, not a, a weird, weird part, part of, the, of book. the book just a weird weird part of like this reading experience was having this like dark passenger who's very concerned about plagiarism and Conrad <laughs> who's like who really wants to avenge Georgette Heyer and hates country Conrad. I was very invested in Hetty and Conrad. What I mean is whenever we're rarely in Hugo's perspective, he's like in denial of his feelings for Lucia. Whenever we're in Lucia's perspective, she's just like quietly hopeful that Hugo has feelings for her, which is pretty boring. But then we get to see Hetty and Conrad have past like flirtatious glances and and quick touches and like all of those sweet romantic things happen with Conrad and Hetty. And then this 
margin writer, this Stephen Fry type, comes in and like pops the balloon of it for me as a reader every single time. This is not the first book, used book that we've had that has had marginal notes in it already when we've gotten it. But this was by far the most affecting. I agree. I felt myself wanting to write at it, where I was like, why do you hate Conrad? Conrad like gets to feel these feelings. He's also being really helpful. Wh- what is your obsession with class? Also, he's the ducal heir. He's not a duke yet. Uncle Bertram isn't dead yet, obviously, because he's still only the Marquis. Your weird class thing doesn't even work here, you stupid fuck. Hetty isn't a duke's daughter. Like, it was so weird to want to argue with margin notes from 1991, but I did. And it also made me stand Conrad, I think, way harder than I would have otherwise. Yeah, that might be it. The reason I'm like so invested is I want to, no, you do not, you have no power here. The Yeti microphone is stronger than the pen and I'm going to have my day in court. Conrad's great by having to have to argue with the dark passenger. I did feel my feelings more strongly. So maybe we owe them a debt of gratitude. I wouldn't go that far. So the other sexy part I was thinking of is when they go to a picnic. So Hetty had been like trying to get her brother to Hugo to participate in this picnic and he's like no it's dumb. It's October Hetty. Yeah he's like it's too cold and she's like I just think a I just think a picnic would be super fun because she wants to spend time with Conrad in an acceptable way. Hugo comes down stairs and after touching our heroine's hand and is like so if uh do you think lucy would be interested in the picnic probably do a picnic and then he goes to the picnic and he brings his date who is you know a widow a very sexy widow and the very sexy widow is like a picnic in october I'd rather die. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly what she acts like the whole time. And he's like, you didn't have to come. Yeah, and he's just like so absorbed in spending time with Lucia, just his friends, just like teasing each other and going for walks, you know. It was like a really captivating passage, almost as captivating as the cockfight. From the time when the urchin arrives, <laughs> the time when he's sent back to his family who apparently sold him for five pence. Well, no, because the urchin was actually highborn, and you could tell because of his very Oliver Twist fine features, he was stolen from his well-to-do family who had been looking for him for the last six months. Yeah. Once again, it's totally fine that we helped them out and that we advocate for them because they are secretly highborn. Yeah. But somehow Country Conrad slipped through the cracks. What was your weirdest part? Oh my god. I think like the weird Irish stuff. Brought up at very specific times, but with like apropos of nothing. Yeah. His main Irish stuff wasn't his accent or the fact that he like lived in Ireland. It was his red hair and bullishness. I was like, these are weird things, but... And the class. The idea that noblesse oblige was so strong in this. Like our urchin had to be a secret aristocrat. Like she's a secret aristocrat. Her Italian opera singer mother, which would have been scandalous was also a secret aristocrat like the idea that class high class is a shorthand for goodness when it's so clearly not because Hugo's father almost gambled all of the money away which meant all of the livelihoods of all of the tenant farmers at his estate would have been penniless and like out on their ear we have bad aristos on the page but the book ethos tells me that no bless oblige is alive and well I think That was a weird part. I think my weirdest part is how mafia-adjacent certain plot points were. 
And just like the the final kidnapping scene of violence and the character of the madam will be another weird part. So what I mean by mafia violence, Hetty, in order to make Country Conrad jealous, has been flirting with Gideon. And Gideon has called her bluff yet again into an assignation. And she shares with our heroine that she has agreed to meet with this guy. And our heroine's like, he's only doing it to get to me. You're not going to go. I'm going to go. And it's like, why doesn't just like nobody go? Why don't we tell Hugo that this is happening? Why don't we like do anything but meet Gideon who has clearly shown himself to be a violent perpetrator? Yeah, and nobody likes him. It's not like you're like trying to protect your own reputation by protecting his. But she decides to go to the assignation. She gets taken to his like secret cottage. He's like, this was my plan all along. And now we are going to kiss. And she's like, no, we're not. And she shoots him. She fucking shoots him in the leg. And then Hugo comes trotting up. Because Hetty told him and everyone was in a kerfuffle. And he's like, she went off alone. She's she's going to get raped. And shows up after the gun's already gone off. And she's like, did I kill him? And, she, and he says, you are not that good a shot. And I'm like, you don't fucking know her. Was she shooting to kill or was she shooting to get away? Oh, yeah, that's the other thing. Yeah, that's why she goes, because he says Hetty has a bunch of IOUs for him, and he says he's going to call. Here's where he gets, like, weirdly mafioso-like. Our hero Hugo is then, like, you go wait outside, and he's just arrived on horseback. There's no carriage, and so she has to, like, wait outside in the cold while he goes in and takes care of things. Like, why... A Mark didn't remember any margin notes about like, oh, so I guess a Marquess is going to go in and clean up blood now. That's how we know he's a good guy. He gets things done. He's a man of action. That's exactly it. He's a man of action. And the actions are weird. Like the the choices as far as like him demonstrating that he's a good man. Like the fact that like we put him in a cockfight so that he can be like, ew, cockfights. The fact that we put him in a situation where he has fish a bullet out of somebody's leg so that we can be like, man of action. The weirdest part is also for me, the madam. So in an attempt to get revenge, Gideon creates a lie that our heroine's grandpa is sick. And so she takes a carriage by herself with her Irish maid, who is fat and loud. And cries a lot. Screams. Just screaming all the time until she gets punched in the face. (laughs) The the carriage storm ride. Oh my God, I forgot about that. Yeah, so this book spends about 50% of the page time is in a carriage of some sort. The other 50% is hating hating on on the the Irish. Irish. 18% overlap, hating on the Irish in a carriage. (laughs) They're like going to her grandpa's house in the country. They are beset by highwaymen. Just kidding, it's Gideon. They make a whole thing about how hard it is to drag the screaming maid out of the carriage because she's so rotund. And then they just drag her out of the carriage to like punch her lights out. They drug, they they drug Lucia. And then the psychedelics! Gideon pinches her nose and pours whiskey down her throat. Lucia. And then we get a really vivid description of what it's like to get too high. That was like pretty spot on. Can you read that passage? 
Strange noises were roaring in her ears. His face began to grow larger and undulate slowly, and then the gloating eyes detached themselves and swam towards her, lidless. Inside her head, she was screaming, but no sound came out above the roaring noises. They grew and grew and grew until the carriage swelled up into an enormous echoing cavern, and then she saw nothing else. Oh, wow. This book was written in the 70s. <laughs> lidless eyes coming at you? That's not good. The carriage swelling into an echo chamber. I mean, it's like the most psychedelic passage we've read, I think, in a romance. She awakens and she's in a house of ill repute and we meet the madam of the house. So before our heroine awakens, we enter this woman's perspective. She is like, Gideon has booked a room. He's told me not to mess with anything. It's very stressful for me because I'm having a bacchanal tonight. But she's also deeply stressed because Gideon has physically assaulted some of her workers in the past and she knows that this is going to be a bad scene and she's going to have to have ownership of it and so we start here her checks and balances from her perspective going to be me or it's going to be this girl it's going to be everything I worked for or it's going to be compromising my humanity and I think the two times that we're in our madam's perspective and like when she finally makes the choice to show Hugo up to the room where our heroine is waiting is terrifying. Seeing Gideon through her perspective is truly frightening. When he initially brings our heroine to the room, he starts to smack her because he wants her to be awake for the assault. And we know that from our madam's perspective. He leaves to wait for her to wake up. And then the madam comes in and and waits for her to wake up. And when she wakes up, She gives her advice on how to survive the ordeal. And then we see from our heroine's perspective, this is not a woman who can or will help me. I am on my own. And it's such a dark depiction of what it means to be a woman sometimes. And a really clear allegory for how patriarchy forces us into isolation. And you can exchange all sorts of things for money, including your physical well-being, and your ethics. Sometimes you are called upon to do those things in order to survive. There's no solidarity in a vacuum like that. Because there can't be. Right, exactly. And this part in particular felt very much the tragedy in Oliver Twist, where it's like you know that Fanny's going to die, and you know that she's going to die because she tried to protect Oliver as long as she could, and that there isn't anybody to help Fanny. And this madam feels very much like that. And as you said, the checks and balances that she's making in her head are really dark and frightening. One of the things that was so chilling to me is I recently did a bystander training uh, for my workplace, how to overcome the fear of being a bystander and like how to like intervene in a situation. The fact that Gideon holds all the cards, both physically and materially, makes it so impossible for Sarah Faulkner to help Lucia in this moment there's even the point when Hugo shows up and he's like you're gonna tell me where she is and she's like I can't because Gideon will kill me and I've got this other thing going on with paying customer and he's and you know then Hugo's like I will break every bone in your body and I will tear this place shiplap from shiplap do it and like she's being threatened with violence no matter what she does and so then you know Hugo rescues Lucia obviously because that's how this book was going to end Gideon's dead and she says like I'm glad that you were able to save her Sarah says that even not knowing that Gideon's dead glad that she like whatever consequences come because of this like whatever harm will come she is genuinely glad really stark 
awareness that enters into like a mostly seemingly unself-aware text, which seems to be doing, you know, all of the fun work of a Regency romance. We're like, we're fancy people in our fancy clothes. We have problems like sexy widows and picnics being too cold and saving an urchin and a cockfight. But this is like almost meta. It's almost like a self-critique. Like we have to tell this story because the other story is too desperate. And that's an actual thing that Lucia thinks to herself. She's like, this woman in her station, in her position, cannot help me. And for the first time in my life, I am completely alone. This is like actually a good place to think about where we started from. Lucia is alone. Gideon is villain from beginning to end. He is breathing down her neck and her heels and she has her like shitty stepfather who's staking her in a game like if it hadn't been Hugo if it hadn't been our hero if it had been Gideon that had been the person to be staked this would have been Lucia's scenario at the beginning and like the fact that it was a good man the fact that it was a hero and not someone else is just blind dumb luck that's the terror that runs through the thread of this novel but we also have to talk about the experience of the maid because the maid shows up at Gideon's aunt's house because she quit based on what happened and she shares with Lucy that she was so scared that they wouldn't take her in and that she just lost all income. They take her with them to the bordello, I guess, and they tell Sarah, the madam, like, do with her whatever you want. And by the time our hero shows up to save our heroine, They've already put her in a little Greek outfit with rouge. And it's like this person, this lady's maid, is just as much on the tide as every other female character in this book. And that's true, you know? Our heroine's a gentle moment is when she's like calling the hero out on his bluff and is eventually taken into the fold. But this scene in the bordello just goes to show how much at mercy people are in this historical moment. Which is wild. And it's like what I'm saying about the 70s. I don't think a Regency from the 60s would be willing to say all of these things about what happens in, a, in the life of a sex worker or what happens in the life of a woman who's a worker, period. Because the lady's maid ends up, you know, in a dumb costume wearing lipstick as well. I think you're exactly right. And I think, as you said, you know, in the 60s, they weren't prepared to say that the kind of villainy that announces a bad actor in your life might just be him saying, you're prettier when you smile. Let me carry those packages for you. No, please don't. I'm already doing it. You know, and like that kind of insertion, that kind of entitlement is itself a villainy. And in the 60s, we weren't talking about it that way. By 1975-76, we are. That does feel like the outcomes of the questions that began to be asked in the late 60s are coming to roost. And as you say, the median temperature materiality of the culture. In the and it's certainly darker, I think, than any other historical we've read. Maybe. I think like the details of this book belie how silly other parts of it feel. Like the fact that you and I were so arrested by three paragraphs of the doomed cockfight for both of them, that it occupied such a big part of this conversation and clearly affected us. The casual horrific violence that Chloe, the maid, is subjected to because she's hitched her wagon to Lucia. I think that is indeed where Sheila Walsh as an author is tipping her hand about what kinds of 
choices and what kinds of things really happen, how people can and can't deal with it. And she's signaling what danger means here. Yeah. And what real stakes are of danger. And it's right here in the Golden Songbird by Sheila Walsh, put out by Signet Regency Romance. I found out that this was the first Signet Regency romance published in this line, which was one of the longest lasting category lines uh, in romance. Went all the way from 76 to like 2006. Yeah. So a really long time. I Where did I find that? Fiction database. That sounds legit. Yeah. I mean, a lot of people cut their teeth on this line. Mary Jo Putney, Mary Ballow. It's a good place to play. You get to be really creative inside a very structured 220 pages. You get to do weird stuff because so many ideas have been trotted down the runway that you can kind of, I think, go the direction you feel and include a cockfight and a truly visceral experience of sex work and when that collides with sadism you know and if people don't like it it doesn't matter because they're gonna get three new ones next month yeah exactly let's talk about the paratext and then let's talk about romance or no man's okay so this paratext like we alluded to at the beginning has a signet regency romance ad coming in january 1991 because this is a massive reprint it's one of the ways that signet made money they just reprinted romances um a lot of the categories do that so we've got Mar- marjorie farrell autumn rose amanda scott bath quadrille gail buck hearts betrayed with a very weird umlaut above the e above the e uh and then we've got the golden songbird the chinese proverb if you build a nest in your heart the singing bird will come and then we have our book and then in the back we have an ad for signet Regency romance where you can order one or 14 different books Dauntless Miss Wingrave, Moonlight Masquerade, The Invincible V Count, Captain Black, A Sporting Proposition, A Dishonorable Proposal, The Player Knight, Knight with a K, The Sergeant Major's Daughter, also by Sheila Walsh, The Masked Deception, The Notorious Nabob by Sheila Walsh. <laughs> Willows would match Lady Sarah's scheme and the Mad Masquerade, all for the low, low price of $3.50. And you can get it at a P.O. box for a dollar off any title of your choice. I'm so glad we read this because I feel like you can really see the pattern of like how we get from something like How Can the Heart Forget or even like The Mistress of Melon to something like a Kathleen Woodowis. This has like shades of Joanna Lindsay in it. This has shades of Judith McNaught, like the amount of adventure in it, the sheer number of things that happen, the sheer number of characters who appear in a very short amount of time sheer number of places this is like a travel book and we don't go anywhere outside of england but we go to a lot of places in england yeah like the fact that kathleen widowis included an actual rape scene in the flame and the flower seems like the natural progression of a fan of romance writing romance if they're reading a book that has this much allusion to sexual assault and it's worth pointing out discusses it as an incredibly villainous unexcusable act Something that's like stomach churning. Right. And not something that the hero is ever going to be accused of doing. Right. To a heroine or anyone else. Like it is not made titillating. Our hero doesn't accidentally sexually assault our heroine. And there's never a whiff of that in this book. 
But isn't it interesting that once we get to the flame and the flower, like the horse trading we're willing to do in order to keep the idea of like a virgin being important, we want two things. We want maintenance of our morality status quo, which has this like weird obsession with virginity, critical hierarchy of good women and bad women. And then, but we also as secret bad women want sex on the page and we want to read about people fucking. And so what are we willing to do? We're willing to accept a hero who is a rapist. Only the one time. Only the first time. Because after that, we all like it. Then it's great. And then we get everything we want. We've got to get over that initial hurdle. That's one of the things that's like very weird to me about the 70s and both the materiality because it like feels like all the outcomes of the questions that were asked in the late 60s moving into the zeitgeist but what that really just creates is dissonance and that dissonance is impossible to hold right like the center cannot hold and then you get the 80s conservative backlash to what the 70s were doing we're gonna see that in our next one i think pretty hardcore but the 70s are a stew there's a lot of stuff happening there are like a lot of peasant tops to investigate i would say I would say the materiality is not very breathable in the 70s. It's trapping all that heat right against your skin. That's a thick knit polyester you've got on. It's a lot of polyester. Undo that tiny zipper that goes down the middle and you're going to smell something that stinks. Oh, are you are you are you sweltering? Lift up that dicky, babe. You just got to let it <laughs> lift up your dicky flap. Unheal your platforms and it is sweaty in there. <laughs> Well, answer or no mance for you, Isabel? I have to say that I, it's a womance for me. I really was on this ride. There are stuff, there's stuff that I didn't like, but like overall, this book did so much interesting stuff that I would highly recommend it. For the first scene alone, I think it was just, just the premise itself was so good. So much of me wants to be like, eh, it was good. I'm sure there are better examples of this, but I don't know if there are. Like, what if this is like a true like weirdo in the bunch that we just happen to pluck out of? Because like I have this instinct for the sheer fact that it's a category romance alone, that there were lots of category romances doing similar work to this, right? But I don't know if that's necessarily true because it feels like such an outlier. And I don't know if that's my like ignorance or if that's, you know, we just got lucky with it. So I I don't know if I would recommend it unless you were like doing like a project, you know, because it, it wasn't like a fun romance to read. There's just so much going on. And I really like because I'm going to think about it like this is a book I'm going to think about for a while and I'm going to think about why it was crafted the way that it was crafted. One of the things I've noticed over, you know, the past three books that we've read is that so much of these category romances aren't like a romance as we understand them today. Like they're basically adventure books for ladies. The women's adventures and like what happens on those adventures is justified and nullified by the end of the book by this like marriage right you've gotten it all out of your system and now you get the ultimate prize which is a lifetime of security which guess what that's what you wanted this whole time financial security so you would never starve and neither will your children it was there all along in the marquess's arms and he realized you were the hottest one And you realized he wasn't that bad. It's not like he drugged you and you could do a lot worse for yourself. 
come a long way, baby. So it's a no-mance for me. (laughs) (laughs) That's fine, you know? Like, we don't have to agree on all of them. Oh, man. Big thanks to our special guest, whoever wrote in those margins, our dark passenger, our Stephen Fry. Thanks for your comments. And if you, too, would like to comment on any of the books that we've read or would like to talk with us, send us a shout-out at our social medias or our uh, email address. And with that, loosen your yellow polyester umpure waist ruffle-necked gowns. But never your principles. Mwah! Whoa, golly gee. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of Womance. Womance is hosted by Isabeau. That's me. And Morgan. That's me. Production is by Nick Gravelin. Our webmistress is the incomparable Jane Bonzac. And our illustration and logo were created by Mary Reichman. They're the best. If you'd like to follow, creep, or connect with us on our social media platforms, you can find us at mans underscore woe on Twitter, womance on Instagram, or email at womancemail at gmail.com. You can also hang out on our amazing website at womancepodcast.com. You can support us by using our code to visit our sponsors or go to our Patreon where we are womance. Womance is officially part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts to add to your romance collection at frolic.media slash podcast. Until next week. Mwah. <laughs>